Coming at you from the frozen tundra that is East Central Alberta, Canada, streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, Float, Odyssey, Telegram, Twitch, TikTok, and the Prepper Broadcast Network. Welcome back to the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. I am Toolman Tim, as today is November 11th, 2022, Remembrance Day, and this is episode 201 of the Workshop Podcast. Today is a pre-recorded Ramblings from the Road episode. Just remember, the audio is never quite as good when I record it on the road. I apologize, but it's a good way to get content out to you and for me to make better use of the time that I'm already on the road. Hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to talk about, kind of give you the bare bones of what I was going to present at Jack's workshop. Uh, Real quick, we'll get the announcements out of the way. Number one, Patch of the Month Club. Please, if you want a way to support the workshop, value for value exchange, sign up for the Patch of the Month Club. Go to patchofthemonth.co, 10 bucks a month, $100 a year, and you get a really cool, politically incorrect, rather hilarious Velcro patch that you can show off to all your friends and neighbors and say, hey, check this out. (laughs) Number two, if you're wondering, hey, has Tim ever recommended the product? And I don't know if he has. Another way to support the workshop is to go by toolmantim.shop, check out the 250 products that I've used and abused, I've reviewed, they've made me money or saved me money in my handyman business. Anything you pick up over there, I get a small percentage of through Amazon and it helps support the workshop. And finally, today's tool, once again, is the Gorilla Packing Tape. Simply because it's that time of year, you're going to be sending packages, you're going to be wrapping up Christmas presents, and I love that shit. It's a little more expensive, but you pay for what you get. So check out that link, it'll be in the description today. And from there, guys, I really hope you enjoy this episode. I spend some time sharing with you about 10 projects that I've built over the years. Some fun stories, some failures, and some stuff you probably haven't heard before. So with that, let's hop right into the episode. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, back with another Ramblings from the Road. I am on the highway today because you guys know I believe in two is one, one is none, and three is a guarantee. Well, I decided I wanted a second snowblower because I'm always paranoid that my snowblower is going to break. And I like to have the same snowblower multiples so that I can swap parts and stock only one type of part. Well, we picked the one out, we ordered it, my daughter brought it to me from the city, and we ordered the wrong damn one. Not sure how we did it, but we did. So there's only two left in the whole city. I'm running up today to swap one out and get the one I need. So here we are. How is everybody today? Always love these ramblings from the road. Have a good time just driving and chatting with you. I miss having the live audience, but I still enjoy doing these. So I thought today, guys, as you know, I didn't end up making it to Jack's and I had my presentation put together. Now this won't be that presentation, but it'll be an overview of what I was gonna talk about. It was, I was gonna share between six and 10, depending on how much time I ended up taking on each one, different projects, DIY, homesteading things that I had done over the years. So I figured, well, I might as well at least share the outline with you guys, share some stories about the different projects and things that I made. And like I've said in the past, abject poverty is a good motivator. And so I had to learn if I had, sorry, not if, when I had a change 
into my hobbies because you guys know that's what happens. I'm like, okay, time to learn a new one. All right, Tim, time to learn a new one. So as things would come and go, and I had zero cash flow to invest in them, well, I had knowledge, ingenuity, and the ability to suck and make things 80% as good as what they'd be if I bought them from the store. So I figured we'd start with that. So it was bad enough at one time. I don't know if I'd call it bad enough, but just one of those situations where I couldn't even really, we couldn't really afford even like a five gallon feeder for our chickens. We had some of the smaller ones. I remember picking up a, a galvanized used one one time and I was so happy we got it. But I kept looking at these feeders that they made and I thought, I can, I can make those five gallon ones because they were like, at the time, I want to say close to $40. So I decided I was going to make them out of five gallon buckets. The problem is, is that, you know, you need a base that's bigger than the bucket itself. So it took me quite a while of digging and looking around. I think I even went to the dump and I found this big blue bucket. I don't know if it was a six or a seven gallon, but it had a, a significantly wider base. So I went up about three, four inches from the bottom and cut the bucket off. So I, I used that as the tray. And then I mounted just a regular five gallon bucket on the inside and I cut four little half circle holes all the way around it. So that as the chickens would peck at the feed, it would fall out just exactly the same as what they had in the store but I built it for zero dollars and the cool thing was of course you've got a five gallon bucket it's got a handle on top so it gives you something to automatically hang it as well so I went and I put it I just hung it up a little bit to keep the birds out of it because you guys know birds love to get in there and shit and carry on so the only only thing I had to use was a little bit of hardware to connect the larger six or seven gallon base of the bucket to the five gallon bucket and I just used a couple of I think it was four nuts bolts and washers probably cost me about a buck but that was way way cheaper than that so then that reminds me of another one that I didn't have on my list but we'll share this with you too so of course even on the east coast it would get you know minus 10 minus 12 celsius enough to freeze the eggs that's for sure and enough for the waterers to freeze and of course I did not have the money for a nice fancy heated waterer either so instead I took my standard galvanized waterer I took a cinder block and I put a lamp base if you guys know what a lamp base is they, they call them a lamp base but it's just one of those something you'd see in a shop or a basement those plastic or I, I used enamel or they're a heavier duty material and all they do is you know you wire two wires to it and you can screw a regular incandescent light bulb in it so I set that down inside the cinder block and then I would sit the chicken waterer right on top of that and it was enough to keep it from freezing completely you know there were times it would still freeze a bit but never that bad it was uh, again a poor man's version of a heated waterer but guess what I didn't have to pay for it there were so many things with the chickens because that was we were early on we there were times I remember that we didn't even have the money to go buy the chicken feed so we would go through the pantry and we would find 
old dry noodles that we hadn't cooked or something the kids didn't like and mama would cook up a great big you know two gallon pot on the stove and we would get down to feed them to the chickens because it would just have to get us by for a couple more days till we got paid and we could go get chicken feed that kind of thing i'm sure some people are thinking well why the hell did you have chickens if you couldn't afford to? well that's part of the reason you have chickens is because you can't afford anything you know the the eggs that you got out of them was and the meat you got from them was far worth more than the feed you put in them, but you still had to come up with that 10 or $12 a week or whatever it was to get chicken feed. But those were a couple of my inventions or builds for chickens. And then I had a third one. This was by far one of the most proud things I've ever built. But the kids and I wanted to hatch chickens. We wanted to take some chickens and some eggs and have some of our own babies because again you know a couple of bucks per chick got pretty expensive when you ordered them so we're like hey why don't we get into doing it ourselves so I thought hey I can do this and I looked at the chicken incubators online Ooh, and back then now there are some cheaper ones you can get nowadays on Amazon that you know I, I don't know the exact price but significantly cheaper than the big ones but at that time this was back 15 18 15 years ago at least they were well well over a hundred dollars and at the time Becky and I had a rule I can't remember the exact amount of money but I want to say it was anything over ten dollars and we had to talk to the other person because we were that broke which basically meant anything over ten dollars disposable income we couldn't buy so I had to figure out a way to buy it build it so this one was pretty cool and this is how a lot of these big projects start with me. But first I look up online and I say, okay, how how are they built? What are the ones, what, what's out there right now that I could buy and how does it work, okay? And then I would start scouring the old forums because I still find the forums are better than going through Google, but scour the old forums. I think it was backyardchickens.com was a really good one back in the day because this was pre-YouTube anyway. So I would scour the forums and I would find pictures of things people done themselves and I would modify and then I would say, okay, what do I have, or better yet, what can I scrounge that won't cost me anything to allow me to build this? Now thinking back on it, I don't believe I spent much of anything on it, but I'll, I'll describe to you how it was built. And if you guys want bigger, I, of course I don't have any pictures of this because it's been, well anyway. This was long before we even had digital cameras kicking around for the most part. I'm sure we had one, but we never saved any of the pictures. So I basically built an insulated plywood box. I had three eighths or quarter inch plywood. I'd say it was about two, two and a half feet tall and 18 to 20 inches wide and deep. And inside, the first thing you need to do is a way to keep the heat in. And this was all, you know, it's all pretty simple. You need a way to keep, you need a way to generate heat, you need a way to regulate heat, you need a way to contain the heat, and you need a way to circulate the heat. So I got looking and I built an insulated plywood box. So the plywood was simple. I believe I had to buy a couple of hinges and a hook for putting that together to put the door on. That was it for that. Now, how did I insulate it? Well, I used that 3 8 foam core board. That's that accordion stuff that you would put underneath of siding when you're putting it on a new house. It worked great. 
two reasons. It was thin, well three, thin, it was insulation, and it had foil. So I put it with the foil on the inside so it would reflect the heat back in, and it worked great. Now you also needed some moisture in there. I couldn't really be real specific on how much moisture because I didn't have a hydrometer or anything, or hygrometer, I don't know what it is. So I just put a small little Tupperware container in the bottom of water. Now, up about six inches, I built a shelf out of hardware cloth. And if you've never seen hardware cloth, it, it's a funny name, but it's basically heavier duty chicken wire, but it's square. So instead of those like octagon shaped holes, you would, they were just like quarter inch, half inch squares. And it was great because the eggs would sit on it without rolling around. And so we would write X's and O's on the eggs. And twice a day, I believe, we would just open it up and flip them. And of course, you wanted to make sure you had a rooster because they needed to be fertilized eggs. And we would just collect a bunch each day and we'd keep them in a glass, a big glass bowl on top of the fridge with a cloth over top of it. And you don't wash them. And that was it. So we collected them all up. Now, as far as the heat goes, guess what I used? <laughs> I used a lamp holder again. So, you know, back then they were like 79 or 89 cents for uh, basically just a light socket that you put up on the roof, on the ceiling in a, in a basement or in a, you know, in, in, well, really anywhere. So I put that in, I wired a, a plug to it. A 100 watt incandescent light bulb turned out to be perfect for that. Now you need a way to circulate the air. So I saved, I stripped out, I had a bunch of old computers and I stripped out the fan out of the old computer and I used that to power. I'm not, I can't remember how I geared that up because I know they were low voltage. I might've taken it out of a power supply because those are 110. So I used that, that ran all the time. Now, here's the thing. One more thing you need. You need a way to regulate the temperature. Now somebody out there could let me know what it was. I want to say it was close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but I'm not sure. So the moisture, the humidity, made the eggs soft enough that the babies could come out. When we were done, we had about a 50% hatch rate, which I thought was great for a homemade incubator. Now, I needed a thermostat and a way to turn on and turn off that light automatically. So I went and I talked to Mike at the scrapyard and I said, hey, I need a thermostat off of an old electric hot water heater. So I went and dug around and you had to find them that would go up to the proper temperature. And I, like I said, I can't remember what they were. I know you don't want to scramble your eggs, but they were what they were. I went and I stripped the, an electric thermostat into there that would turn on and turn off. You needed something that you could have the, the on-offs really close. They work like, like an analog light timer, analog water sprinkler timers. You know, you just you set your on, you set your off, and you get them really close. And it worked great. You know, I could keep the temperature to within a couple of degrees Fahrenheit of where it needed to be all the time. So the only thing I didn't have was an indoor-outdoor thermometer. So I needed the digital thermometer that I could put, you know, a probe inside and have it mounted to the outside so I could keep an eye on the temperature. So that I do, once I had that thermostat set properly, the temperature would be right. So I ended up buying one for about 10 bucks. I remember that was the big, the big thing I bought I used and then we put a window in the front of it I cut a hole out and I got a scavenged piece of four inch by six inch or six inch by eight inch plexiglass 
from the scrap bin at work and I taped it to the door using aluminum foil tape, like that really sticky duct tape, and it worked great. Now, I don't believe I'm forgetting anything, and that was basically all there was to it. So then you put your eggs in there, you put X's with a, we, we used a Sharpie, we put X's on one side, O's on the other, and we would just rotate them, I believe it was twice a day. And that was it, and like I said, we had about a 50% success rate, which, I was totally happy with because the investment wasn't much except for time. We did two or three batches out of that. Then a few years later, I built a second one and it wasn't as successful. I don't know what the problem was. I don't know if it was the thermostat that gave me grief, but we only had about a 10 or 20% success rate. And that could have just been down to the eggs not being fertilized. I don't know, but it was sure fun. We really enjoyed it when the older kids were young. We'd sit there and watch the birds come through. And even though they tell you don't help them, sometimes Becky would get in there with tweezers and start pulling them off. And then I remember one time we bought goats because we, we were doing goat's milk and all this. This isn't quite a project, but it's another story I'm gonna share with you. So we needed to trim their hooves and we couldn't of course afford to have somebody come out and trim them. So I looked up online how to trim these goat hooves myself. And I found out that um, side cutters like aviation snips that you would use in a toolbox, the yellow straight cuts or whatever, worked great. So I, I said, well, honey, I got to do it. So we sat down and did it. And then I, I think it was Precious, the mom, we ended up cutting hers just a little too short and she started bleeding. And I panicked. We didn't know what to do. So we went online. And if you didn't know this, cornstarch is a great coagulant. Is that what you want to call it? I'm not sure. Anyway, so we took a bunch of cornstarch and we just kind of poof threw it on the cut and it slowed the bleeding down until it stopped so that was rather interesting so that was my chicken inventions my chicken built that I built next this was maybe one of the first things I built or had built when we were just moved in together I think we just got married and I was a huge fan of unfiltered unpasteurized apple cider and I had access to all the dropped apples I wanted for those who don't know what dropped apples are they're what, you, what they sound like but if you go to an orchard any of the apples that hit the ground they can't sell for human consumption in Nova Scotia they would bag them up and sell them as deer apples but typically there was absolutely nothing wrong with them. so we could go pick them up or I would just buy big 50 pound bags of deer apples. So I said, well, hey, I love cider. I'm going to make cider. And I looked, and I'm like, well, how am I going to mince up the apples to press them? Because you need to basically turn your apples to pulp, and then you need a high-pressure press to squeeze the juice out. That's what gives it its cloudiness and the floating solids. So I looked online again. I started doing the same old process I always did, and I found some homemade apple mincers. Basically what you need is a drum with a bunch of cutters on it, something sharp that sticks out, that spins really fast, and then you drop your apples in and it just goes and turns them into pulp. So I had some, can't even call it plywood, it was laminated MDF board, which was the worst thing for that, but it worked. 
So I, I said, well, I can build the frame. I've got two by fours. I can build the hopper where the apples go in. I have that laminated MDF. But what am I going to use for a drum? Something that spins and chews up the apples. So I was looking around, and if I'd have thought about it now, I might have used something like, I don't know, a heavy-duty can and just punched a whole bunch of holes through it with, hand, with uh, a nail and hammers. But at the time, I don't know if this was stupid or ingenious or what, but I thought, well, what do I have that's solid and round? So I went downstairs and I looked through my firewood pile and I found the roundest piece of maple that I had in my firewood pile. And I brought it into work and I hired a guy who had a lathe to lathe it out, drill a hole through it, and drive a piece of stainless steel shaft through the center. So that was basically my drum that worked for that. Now, that was great at the time, but the maple was obviously still fairly wet. And over time it dried and started cracking, but it still held up. So now I had a cylinder or a drum with a shaft running through it. And I believe he only charged me 20 bucks for that. I had to order the, the stainless steel shaft from somebody. But it was a cool project. So I had the drum. Now I needed something to mix the apples with. So I started digging around in the drawers at work. And I found a bunch of stainless steel. It's like a pack of 100 stainless steel siding screws. So what I did was it went all around that. And I sunk those screws into the piece of maple about three quarters of the way. And I left the head stick up about half to a quarter of an inch and that's all it took so now at that point I had my drum I built a hopper and I built the frame for it so now I needed a way to spin it and power it so I had to I bought a couple of bearings that mounted to the side that the shaft would fit through so that would allow it to spin I bought a cheap little pulley that I put on the end of the shaft last thing I needed was a way to power it. So I talked to my buddy Harry Conrad. He was an appliance repair guy. I said, hey Harry, I'm looking for a motor. Oh yeah, always had something. He'd give me so much cheap and free stuff. It was so good. There were so many people so good to me back in the day. I'm surprised I never got tired of me scratching from him, but I, I always treated him good at home hardware. So he brought me in a washing machine motor because back in the day, tons of washing machines were belt driven instead of the newer direct drive ones. So the belt driven were great because they had a pulley on the shaft coming off the motor. So all I had to do was mount the motor and find the right size V-belt, put a cord to it, and Bob's your uncle. We were mincing apples like crazy. Now, one other thing. You had to lubricate those joints, the little bearings. And of course, you wouldn't want to use something like WD-40 or my favorite fluid film because it would contaminate it. So we had to use either mineral oil or canola or some sort of natural oil at that time to lubricate it. So that, that was nothing too serious. And you know what? I got that far with the project and then I had planned on going into building an apple press and it never happened. I had the plans built. It was basically going to be a, like a reinforced wood barrel. I was going to put plywood on top and then I was just going to use a bottle jack as my hydraulic force. And it would have worked great, but I didn't have the money to buy a bottle jack at the time. And then I think we moved after that. But that was, yeah, that was a fun project. I always loved getting into building things like that. So that was my apple cider days. That was kind of fun. Always enjoyed it. Um, oh, one other one 
that I had started to build but just didn't have the money again was a chicken plucker. So I started looking at plans because I always wanted, we, we did, we were, we were doing 75 to 100 meat birds once or twice a year. And of course the biggest job was getting the feathers off them. So I had been looking at building a chicken plucker out of an old washing machine. I had all the parts. The problem is I just couldn't afford to buy the fingers because them damn fingers were expensive. So I had kept looking and looking for a way to build, to make those fingers myself. And I just never come up with a success. I'd like to hear from somebody if anybody out there has ever built their own chicken plucker. And especially if you built one without, <laughs> without using manufactured fingers if you come up with another way to make those fingers I would love to have heard that solution because that was a project that got halfway through over the years and never quite finished simply because of money now another one was the root cellar or cold cellar and this is a cool project this is something just about anybody can do works great first off everybody listening I think will know what a root cellar or a cold cellar is but maybe not everybody and it's basically a, a, an insulated, unheated space in your basement or below ground that you can store vegetables, canned goods in and help extend their shelf life because it's kind of like a rudimentary refrigeration system. That's what the old timers did. So if you can allow yourself an eight by eight space in your basement, this is, of course, if you have a basement, but I built, I built one of these and I, plans to build a second one years later. We had a dirt floor basement in our house in Dowsonville. So I built a concrete form, eight by eight. I just, I used just boards, put concrete, some rebar in it, and some anchor bolts so that I could put the, the walls, the frames, everything up there on top of it. Built that, and then just built walls around it door it needs to be insulated so make sure you make it you know four inches thick so you can put fiberglass still seems to be the cheapest but you want to insulate it and then insulate your roof too because you don't want whatever the cold air is in there getting up to the upstairs floor so you basically want a self-contained shut-off room I used a plywood door I put insulation in the door and it worked quite well but you also need ventilation ventilation that you can turn on or turn off as needed. If it gets too cold, shut it off, too warm, open it up, whatever it is. So basically you want a kind of a, a high and a low entry point for air. So you need, uh, for me, uh, I prefer a four inch because you know four inch pipe is easy to work with. That's your biggest, I don't know if I'd call it problem or issue that you need to figure out is how to drill a four inch hole through your exterior wall to allow cold air in or cold air out. If it gets too hot, you shut it off. If it gets too cold, you shut it off. But another thing you can use is central back parts. They're two inch and they have like a blast gate in them. So you can, two inch is a lot easier. It doesn't let in as much air, but it's always a compromise. But if you go and look at shop, uh, sorry, central back plumbing pieces you can hook those up and then they have like a slide down blast gate you can open or close so that, that's pretty handy too but that's really all there is to that uh, another project we built and I was going to talk about this a little bit 
was a completely not illegal, 100% above board septic system. I've told you guys the story about our septic line collapsing at the house, but. So if you have never built a septic system before and you're kind of nervous about it, I mean, once it's in the ground, my opinion was so it's always been there, right? Either way. So you just need, you know, the shit goes downhill, right? You need somewhere for the waste to, to go out. So number one, you need to make sure it's sloped down and out of the house. And then you need a containment system to hold solids. And then you need a drain system for liquids to go out. That's really all there is. So you need, you need a line from your house going into a container. You need a container to hold shit, toilet paper, and whatever the kids happen to flush down the toilet. Then you need the simplest from there is you have a drain vent on the top that allows liquid to siphon off and then go leach into the ground. Now we did it a little bit fancier than that, but if you guys have ever seen dug wells, you know they got those well rings that are like four foot circle cement columns. Well we use those. We bought two of those. We bought some four footers and we bought some three footers. We had a tractor that was a you know, cost, I think it was about 1300 bucks to build it. It was one of the coolest things I'd ever built. And a buddy come down for about half a day and we built it. No permit, no nothing. It's still there. It, it, it lasted for all the years we lived there without any problems at all. So we needed a way to drill. We had to, we had to rent a four-inch core drill to drill through the cement of the house. Then we needed to drill a hole into and out of two of the well rings. So the four foot, two deep, four foot rings. Sorry guys, that's a rumble strip. We dug them in the ground. We had one 10 foot section of pipe running from the house into those two well rings for the solids. And then near the top, we drilled an, an output hole, another 10 foot section of pipe into another three foot holding section. And then we ran, I think it was about 40 feet of perforated pipe if you don't know what perforated pipe is, it's basically solid four inch pipe but with a whole bunch of holes drilled in it. And we had really good drainage soil there. We ran it out 40 feet directly in a straight line. You could branch it off if you want to get real fancy. But basically what that does is it gives somewhere for the liquids to go and drain into the ground. And it worked great, incredibly great. So of course the solids tank, we had a four foot lid that went on top of it and it had a you want to call it a peephole or an access hole a little removable lid on the top so you could get a pipe down in there and suck it out if you needed to but we never had any problems at the bottom before we put the, the well rings in we put two foot by two foot patio stones we put four of them down there to set it on just so it kind of give it a solid finish then we used a little bit of roof and tire to seal it all together and that was it guys it was unreal we never hit a rock digging we were really excited about that but yeah if you ever want to put a completely illegal septic system in uh, we can definitely talk about i'm sorry not illegal <laughs> anyway it was but we had neighbors who had put septic systems in at their house and it cost them one of them was like forty thousand dollars because it had two two holding tanks and two pumps so the, the great thing about our system was it was completely off-grid. So as long as you could get water into your toilet, it would flush, go downhill, and 
work its way out the system without a single piece of machinery needed. Whereas my neighbors needed two pumps to pump it uphill and let it float back downhill. It was horrible. So if the power goes out, you were up Shit's Creek without a paddle. It was pretty crazy. But it was a good, yeah, it was a, it was a great project. I loved that one. I learned a lot from that. Uh, what else? How about the livestock hoist? So when I got back into hunting, I shot a couple of deer that year and I needed a way to lift up the deer to hang in my garage so they were, you know, cold and I would be able to butcher them in a few days. And I didn't want to spend all the money on all the things. I had a little bit of money at this point, but I still needed some. So I looked online and I saw like those livestock hooks that they hook into the meat and they worked good but I didn't want to order them so what I ended up finding was like this noose system it was really cool so first thing I needed was a piece of heavy-duty three-quarter inch pipe that I could drill holes through and then I needed some aircraft cable if you don't know what that is it basically looks like rope that's made out of steel it's kind of like braided steel cable I drilled some holes about two inches apart and then I put a loop down through the top of the pipe down through the bottom and then back up through the bottom and out through the top and then I put a aircraft clamp cable a cable clamp on there so basically I made like a slip knot in the ends of each one and all it did was it's pretty cool it's, it's a wide bar and if you guys want to see pictures of this I still have this and I, I can't remember the name of the company they make one it was a couple hundred dollars and I didn't want to spend it so I bought you know 30 or 40 dollars worth of hardware and built it myself so you basically make two slip knots on either end that you can pull out as much or as little of the cable as you need and then you just run the livestock's arm up through to the first not knuckle in the arm but whatever that would be like their elbow or whatever you get it just below that first joint in the arm and then you start lifting it up and the weight of the carcass pulls it tight so it actually there's no way it can come out and then I just used a boat wedge like one of those hand crank boat wedges you'd see to pull say like a motorboat up onto a little you know, three-wheel cart or something bought that for 20 or 30 dollars and then I mounted it to the roof of my garage and that was it it was so slick so easy but I share these stories because hey Maybe there's something you're looking at building and you'd like to build it yourself too. And my final most recent one is a wicking bed. Now I've got some footage of this and I'm going to turn this into a video at some point. But a wicking bed, if you've never used one, is a glorious frigging invention. Incredible. Just, I loved it. Now I failed miserably on the first one and I've shared this story with some people before, but we wanted raised wicking beds. So if you don't know what a wicking bed is, it's basically an enclosed garden bed that holds water in the bottom and through some sort of scientific action, the moisture wicks up through the soil to the roots of the plants. Now what's great about that is you're not dumping the water on top of the soil and losing most of it to evaporation. It took all, I want to tell you, almost all of the work out of gardening I loved it so how does it how does it work well first off you guys have heard me share the story about how I failed miserably on it before and if you want to hear that again let me know but 
I built one this year. We're going to build two more. So it's a four by eight container. I built it pressure treated lumber. And before you get your panties in a knot, the water and the plants never touch the pressure treated. So there's no concern there. Four by eight, three feet high. And then I bought a pond liner on Amazon. And you put the entire thing in get it kind of tucked in nice, nail, nail the pond liner into place. So now you have a four by eight, three foot high, basically what would contain water if you wanted it to. Now the first thing you put in the bottom is four foot flexible, what we used to call big O sewer pipe. So it's basically that corrugated accordion style pipe with a whole bunch of slits in it. And I ran it all the way around the bottom and then up to the top and then nailed it off at the top. So you basically you've got you know, a whole loop of that pipe in the bottom of this three foot deep container. Then along the side, you have it running up the side so that you have an opening you can dump water into. Okay, so from there, you fill in the bottom third or so with sand or gravel, something very porous. I used kind of a mixture. It was like, a, I don't even know, it was closer to sand than anything. So you fill it up about halfway. Then you put weed cloth. Everybody knows what weed cloth is or old carpet or whatever. Basically just something to keep the gravel and sand from mixing with the soil you're gonna put on top, okay? So now you've got a halfway full of gra or gravel or sand. You got some sort of semi-permeable barrier in there. And then you fill the top half with soil. Now at some point, you want to put a drain plug on the side of the port because if not, if it rains too hard and it fills up, you're going to have flood and it's going to kill your plants. So you want, basically at the height of the soil, you want a drain that will allow the water to flow out. Now I bought a, oh boy, I can't think of what they call those right now, but you, you drill a hole and you screw them together and you put them through like an IBC tote or whatever. I want to call them a bunghole, but that's not quite what they are. But they, anyway, they screw together. Somebody's screaming right now, and you can tell me. But there's basically like a waterproof seal that you can put. It allows you to give a threaded connection. So I put one of those in there. Then you plant like normal. And if you want to supercharge it, you use mulch. So I had a bunch of pine shavings that I used, and it worked great. Here's what you do. Mulch the top. Then you take... <sighs> and you put your hose down in that pipe just at the top and you fill it. And it's gonna take about 20, maybe 30 minutes to fill it. It's gonna be hard to believe how much water that pipe will take. So you're gonna get it as full as right to capacity. Then you might need to give it a water from the top once or twice because it takes a day or two for that wicking action to really take place and start wicking up through. But by the time, you know, a couple of days is in, I want to say last winter, last summer, I may have only filled that two or three times. And we had a fairly hot summer. But you've got two things. You've got all that water in the bottom, and then you've got mulch on the top that insulates it so that the water doesn't evaporate. And you get some of the best lush, green, incredibly grown veggies and plants and foliage that you're ever going to see. I love it. It's in. It, it, now, it's a bit of an investment up front, but we're building two more next summer because they are the best thing, in my opinion, for growing crops at home on a small scale. Now, 
you, I would never want to do that for something that was, you know, massively huge because I, it would become prohibitively expensive. But those wicking beds are huge over in Australia where they fight with heat all the time and evaporation and that kind of stuff. So if you guys would like me to do a follow-up on wicking beds at some point, I'd do a whole show on it. I love them. They're great. And of course, I used, what did I get? We got blueberry plants, and we got some rhubarb from my buddy Carson in Edmonton, and we got some comfrey from everybody. Everybody knows Chris Dixon. He brought a bunch up for me. So it's kind of like a community-sourced wicking bed, and it was great. So if you've never seen them, you guys got to check out wicking beds because they, they are the cat's ass when it comes to that kind of stuff. Let's see, one more project. I was, I, I didn't know how far I would get into this, but this is a little bit different, but it was lead reclamation or reclamation or whatever you want to call it. Have you ever looked at like shit hit the fan kind of reloading or making kind of homemade bullets or shotgun shot, that kind of stuff? I got into that for a while. And at the time I would just go to the local garage and I would buy two and a half gallon buckets full of wheel weights for, I think it was like 20 bucks. So it wasn't super expensive. It's getting harder to find real lead in those. Most of them are zinc now, but for years the lead was great. Now, you wanna wear yourself some sort of N95 filter mask or something when you do this. I didn't, stupid me. I made sure I had the wind blowing the right way and I stood downwind so it wasn't blowing in my face. Basically, what I did was I took a stock pot, I put it on my barbecue at first, and then on one of those turkey frying, outdoor turkey frying things. So I put the stock pot on there, I would heat it up, and I would put as many wheel weights as I thought could reasonably go in there, and you would just let them heat up. Two things, you know, wear, wear eye protection. Don't put water in there. If you want to hurt yourself or kill yourself, dump a bunch of water and molten lead and see what happens. But basically let it heat up and lead of course will melt with an open flame, but all the other stuff like steel and that kind of stuff won't melt. And so you just keep scooping it off. And I had like a slotted spoon, this big kind of four inch round hold spoon that I used. And I would just scoop all the shit out of there until all I had left was clean or fairly clean lead. And then I went to a Salvation Army store and bought some muffin tins and I would dump them into there and I still have all those lead ignits to this day. I've probably got two or three hundred pounds of lead that I've never done anything with. So this is kind of uh, confession time where I start a lot of projects and don't finish a lot of them. But it was a, yeah, it was a, a pretty cool process. You didn't need anything fancy or special for it. I started building a shot dripper which is basically something that would make a homemade shotgun shot, didn't work. If I did it again, I would probably just make slugs. But it was fun. It was really cool. It was simple. But it's getting harder and harder to find lead nowadays. So I hope you guys liked that. This was a bit of a off the cuff. I just had the list to go by. These were the projects I was going to talk about at Jack's this weekend. It sucks I'm not there. But you know what? I feel good about it glad I didn't go because these new customers are oh guys it's it 
let's just say it's going to put a lot of money in my pocket and I'm really excited about that. So I hope everybody out there is having a great week. I think these pre-recorded shows will be on Fridays from now on. This should land tomorrow as long as I get it edited properly tonight. Tonight will be episode 200. You won't hear this until tomorrow, so this one will probably be 201. But I'm pretty excited about talking about the history of preparedness. This has been a passion project of mine for a while that I've been digging around with in the back of my brain. And I can't wait to share it with you guys. So that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.